Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the crowdfunding podcast. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, February 3rd, 2014. On this day in history, in 1987, Aretha Franklin became the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hats off. After living in Mozambique for several years, we saw the need for a product that would provide people with a reliable light source and a renewable, portable battery for charging cell phones. From there, we came up with the idea for the Zuba. Whether used in the tropics of Africa or snow-capped mountains across the globe, Zuva is a solar-powered, super-bright LED flashlight. Besides Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. You look a lot like the picture. Thank you. I hope so. I can call you Lauren, let's hope. That's right. And I call you DJ? You can call me anything you want, actually. I'll call you DJ. Are you in D.C., Mozambique, Utah, what? I can't get a grasp on you. Well, have been in all of those places, currently in Utah. I'm actually in the city of Washington in the state of Utah. You have the Zuva. Delighting a sustainable world. You're on Indiegogo, and I'm kind of new to Indiegogo. I'm trying this outreach program, and you do missions work, I believe. I'm guessing, though, so I believe you know what outreach is all about. Absolutely. In your outreach program, because to me, that's a kind of different way of life, you know, doing these, uh, what you call missions work and stuff. Could you tell me a little bit about it? My wife and I lived for four and a half years in Mozambique and Angola. That's down in the southern part of Africa, borders South Africa, in fact. They're both Portuguese-speaking countries, and we were there doing humanitarian work. Remember, Lauren, it's never about me. It's always about you and your wife, man. So why don't you tell me about the Zuva, man? Cool name for the sustainable, rechargeable LED flashlight, so... My wife and I have actually been designing and manufacturing flashlights for about 10 years, but never under our own name. We always have someone else who we put their brand on it. This is the first time we've ever created our own product from the ground up and gone through the advertising process with it also. And it's actually our best product. It's powered either by a solar panel, which... What we do with it, we put it in the window of our house, in a bright window, and it just charges all day long. And so it's always got a full charge, even if I use it during the day, if I use it at night, put it back in the window, and it recharges. However, if you really need a quick charge, the end cap comes off, and when you pull it off, you can see that it's got two USB ports in it, It's got a micro USB port that you can charge the lithium ion batteries right through your wall outlet, through your car, through your computer, whatever. But you can also use the Zuva not just as a bright light, and it is very bright. Yeah, you just blinded me, man. You just blinded me with science. (laughs) I didn't mean to shine it right at the uh, camera. Anyway, it's a very bright LED but also you can use it to charge your cell phone. 
So if you're out somewhere, your cell phone's just about to die, you just plug it into your cell phone and, and there you go. You can get a full charge. It's compact. You can put it right in your pocket. It's only six inches long, weighs less than five ounces. Right. Anyway, we designed it so that it would be rugged, durable. It's not waterproof. You can't go scuba diving with it, but uh, you can definitely leave it out in the rain, take a shower with it, anything like that, and it'll be just fine. I've been very selfish. I realize that now because your history with your family is about your missions work also. When you put this light together, you must have had a whole different perspective, not not just the United States. I'm, I'm thinking about myself, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Americans, but you must have also had the developing world in mind when you created this light. Absolutely. When we were living over in Mozambique, one of the things that we noticed is that everybody's got a cell phone. The, the poorest people have cell phones. Cell phones are very cheap. Used cell phones are very cheap. And the way the phone system works in Mozambique, only the person initiating the phone call pays for the phone call. So if people call you, you never pay anything for cell phone usage. Oh, okay. So even very poor people have cell phones. The problem is they have a cell phone, but they have no way to charge it. And so they're always trying to find some way to charge it or their battery goes dead and, and it's dead for three or four days. Meanwhile, you're trying to contact them and you can't because, well, their cell phone's dead and with no way to charge it. And so we thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we could create something? One thing that they do have in abundance in Mozambique is sunlight. Yeah. And so wouldn't it be great if we could create a, something that could charge up batteries and then charge up their cell phone when they need it? Another problem, though, is because of the lack of electricity, nobody has lighting. It's dark. Just trying to find your way, as, as soon as the sun goes down, it is very dark, unless there's a full moon. Right. I've been walking around the Mozambique rural areas after dark, and boy, you almost trip over everything. There just aren't street lights, just no lights at all, mostly. So this would solve a problem for them? You know, it sounds like a luxury to be able to charge a cell phone, but nowadays, even in, in places like Mozambique, which is a very poor country, Cell phones are a necessity. That's how you get in touch with people. Somebody who lives five miles away from you, they really don't have the money to uh, catch a bus to go see them. So what they do is text each other or from midnight till six in the morning, phone calls are free. So they end up calling at night and getting in touch with people. My last short question with this flashlight, the Zuva, would it be economical for someone in the developing world to be able to purchase one? Absolutely. Right now, we're working with a charitable organization called Care for Life. In fact, we uh, ran into them when we were over in Mozambique. In fact, what we're doing right now, we're giving, for every four flashlights that are purchased, we're giving one to Care for Life. They don't hand them out. They give them as rewards for completing their programs that they offer over in Mozambique. But Care for Life is also very interested in marketing the flashlight over there, anywhere from 10 to $12 per light in Mozambique, which is just barely above cost. At that price, it actually would be very affordable. 
for Mozambicans to buy it. For anyone out there, if you're on Indiegogo, or if you have the urge to go to Indiegogo, check out the Zuva, a sustainable flashlight that I believe is for everyone. DJ Grandpa is all about renewables, so don't try and test me or anything like that. And don't say I'm not about renewables because I'll call you on it. And if you can't find the Zuva, Z-U-V-A, on Indiegogo, always go to djgrandpa.com where we will have links for Lauren and his family business. Your family is destined for great things. You know it's true, but others stand in your way. Perhaps if you can find an ally with ties to royalty, or maybe the right marriage could secure a better title for your family, and the power you could find in the church, that can't be ignored either. And if it comes to it, you'll take your forces to war. How's it going, Uva? Hello, hello, hello. And I pronounce your game, Fief. Yeah, thief, exactly. Right, France, 1420. And this is this is like what you'd call a reprint, right? Yes, it was printed in France in the 90s and then again in the early 2000s and then again in 2011. And then we tried it and loved it, made a bunch of additions, streamlines, changes, and now it's we're getting a lot of people just rebuying the game because it, we're trying to offer so much more, you know. Could you please tell me what the game is actually about? The game, what it is, is you're building up your family members and bringing them power and influence by trying to gain them both royal titles that are given by the king and ecclesiastical titles that are given by the church. Right. And your goal is that with these titles that gives you votes and all the players, when there are enough titles out there, royal titles and ecclesiastical, these players, the final end game is that they're trying to vote one of their family members to become king of France and another family member to be the pope. And these give you the power and the victory you need to win. But this game is very difficult to win by yourself. So what the beauty is, is that you're making alliances with another player by marrying off one of your family members to one of their family members. Unfortunately, it's not a game for people who will never forgive you if you screw them over in the game. Because this is a game where, <laughs> you know, if you got to murder someone, you might just go out and try to murder them, you know. <laughs> and it's just the way it was in history. I didn't think you were doing reality games now. I thought this was, you know. <laughs> yeah, Academy Games. We try to always. Yeah. What makes the game so much fun also is that it's a map of medieval France, a section of it. And you're trying to control different villages and cities in France, which give you the voting power to vote then for the different titles and also where you can buy titles. But the problem with this is, is that the fief, which is a territory where you get a royal title, like a baron or an earl, you may control a fief, but a bishopric, which is the territory controlled by the bishops and the cardinals, they go over several fiefs. So several competing players may control territory in the same bishopric. Now, this is where the beauty is. 
if you are a bishop or cardinal of a bishopric, you can, of course, as a church, come in and levy tithes, church taxes, on all the players in that area. It's just a beautiful game because certain players will be depending on their income, and all of a sudden you as a cardinal come in and say, I love you, I love all your people, and because you are an outstanding member of the church, pay me. And it just brings such a beautiful dynamic to the game. And the same with the royal titles. They can tax their own fiefdoms. But if they do, then the peasants and the locals may revolt. It sounds like it's a lot about money and wealth and the collection of money and power. And And votes. It's all about the votes. Influence, I guess you would say, if you're talking about votes. Exactly. It's money, influence, votes. Those three things, well, the money doesn't, but the influence and the votes and the power you gain wins you the game. And there's certain things that can dampen that, like maybe you're talking about the plague. Oh, when the plague hits, oh, it is, yeah. it's horrible because the plague, you'll be building up your people. You, you have one of your main power brokers in the game and all of a sudden the plague hits and there's a 50-50 chance he'll die and right. he loses everything. And if he's a church, ecclesiastical, that title goes away. If it's royal, of course, if he has a son, it goes right to the son. Right. But it's a wonderful game. I guess since it stood the test of time, it has to be fun somehow. But I want your opinion on it. My daughter-in-law hates the game. Okay. She hates it with a passion. But what's wrong with her? Well, the first thing is that my daughter-in-law was forced to marry me. I forced (laughs) her into marrying me or else she knew it would go bad for her. Now, that didn't go over well because, unfortunately, she felt that I needed to ask her for a hand in marriage, which, in retrospect, maybe I could have done it a little better. And as soon as we married and she got some of the benefits of our marriage, instantly my wife moves into her homeland and takes her capital. And she gets so (laughs) mad at my wife. And she's like sullen, sulky. She is mad at my wife. And the very next turn, my daughter just comes in from the other side and totally wipes her out. And she's like, why did you do that? And the only reason my daughter did was because she was sulking. Mm. And everybody's just laughing. They're dying, laughing, having a good time because it was just the most underhanded thing to do. Right. Of course, my daughter did well, except my poor daughter-in-law. She's not the type of person who (laughs) can take any type of conflict in any type of game. So I lose it. I tell you what, it was hilarious. You guys got playing the game and family dynamics mixed up, but I want to make sure you didn't lose a daughter-in-law over this one. Right after that, we played another game and she exacted her revenge. And I kept on telling her, you should not have a memory of past games. And she says, oh no, I'm not, I'm not. And I'm going like, well, if you don't have a memory of past games while you're attacking me. She goes, oh, uh... No reason. Then she said some French word, you know, sequoia pas or something like that. And I knew, I knew she was exacting her revenge. (laughs) This is interesting, man. The family dynamics at your house and how you mixed up business and pleasure somehow. And it didn't actually turn out so well. But but you guys (laughs) moved on, though. You didn't cling to it forever. I mean, at least you haven't. But we have to see how the daughter-in-law... I mean, it's like when my wife, when we first married, we played a game called, it was Donald Trump. It was called Trump. Oh, no. 
actually was a good game. It was about okay, stocks, okay. stocks and bonds. You know, right. it was a, actually we still really like it. But my wife, we were married maybe four or five months. And my I was playing. My brother was there. Someone else, and my brother just so underhandedly screwed her over. And my wife gets along with everybody. She loves the world. Everybody loves my wife. This is the only time it's ever happened, and it hasn't happened since. But she gets up and literally took the Donald Trump game and threw it into the fireplace. I think he has that effect on people, man. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, my brother died laughing. I died laughing. It was the same like my my daughter-in-law now. My wife, she refuses to buy me a new copy of that game. She says... She'll never forget it. And, you know, I'm making fun here because it is one of these games where it is very difficult to everybody to hold hands, have a friendly, nice, cooperative game and win. That's not what it's about. And this sounds like an incredible game. And I like the parts about people being either forced off to marry each other, which, you know, I'm thinking I'm around a lot of feminists sometimes, so that may not go over so well. And I'm I'm thinking about you can buy influence and and peddle votes and power and influence and then somehow maybe lose it all when it comes to the plague or war or famine or being taxed to death. What is so exciting about the Thief Kickstarter is we've totally redone the game where the components, the maps being expanded. But over the years that we've been talking, we've been this has been a project that's been in the line now for several years. Oh, okay. And we've been planning on doing expansions. We're going to come out with the first game and then come out with an expansion game called the Templars. And then another expansion game about the Crusades and another expansion game about the Teutonic Knights in France. And these are all different times in French history. And the Kickstarter campaign is doing so well. I mean, we're now nine times more than we we asked for that. We started adding all these stretch goals to this campaign. So when people just buy the game, they're getting 14 extra stretch goals so far. Oh, we just passed another one this evening I just saw. So they're getting 15 incredible stretch goals. And of these 15 stretch goals, three of them are like major game expansions that we are going to sell as separate games. So it really is a good deal and the people who know the game they're just jumping on it because right so that's excitement and that's why it's blowing us away here we are a little game company in middle of ohio and this kickstarter is just exceeding all of our expectations i'd say if i were on kickstarter or i'd say if you're on kickstarter check out fief that's f-i-e-f france 1429 And if you can't find it there on Kickstarter, always go to djgrandpa.com where we have links for Academy Games. Uva, thanks for having the patience to explain the game to me, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you for taking the time, and thanks to all your listeners for maybe considering uh, looking at the game. Welcome to the crib, Joshua, and what would lead an individual to come up with such a graphic novel as Curiosity? It's really the result of several years working in a cubicle job, and so, you know, you kind of sit there doing your kind of automated stuff that you're not really thinking too hard about, and you don't want to be thinking too hard about, and you just let your uh, 
you start letting your imagination uh, run wild and it starts to go into eventually you do that long enough i guess everything that you the movies you've seen and the books you've read the music you've listened to all kind of congeals together and into this weird synergistic thing and for me maybe it's because i was reading a lot of uh, james bond books at the time but uh it's a spy story in, in the future, so it, while it's got a little bit of that Flash Gordon vibe we were talking about, it's also got a lot of that spy vibe. So, you know, like I said, with the, the kind of early idea was uh, this James Bond in a Flash Gordon world. So that's where it started. And what's his name again? Our main character's name is Curiosity Hamilton. As I was working on building up Curiosity and trying to figure out what he was, I knew right away I didn't, even though I was kind of starting from this James Bond idea, I didn't want him to be a James Bond in the future. I wanted him to be his own kind of person. A guy that you wouldn't normally think would be this kind of Flash Gordon action hero hero. He's sort of an intellectual, went to school for a long time, knows a lot of different things. And, and this kind of got to the point of a man who likes to know things, which is how everyone describes him is right. as a man who likes to know things, which is why when something weird happens, he's the one that they send in because they know that he'll get to the bottom of it. And something very weird, when we get to the start of the story, something very weird has been going on. You have all these guys. There are you know military officers and high-ranking government officials who all of a sudden, for no reason that anyone can find out, they get a phone call and a mystery voice says a phrase over the phone to them, and they suddenly become saboteurs and traitors. It starts off with someone tries to assassinate the president of Earth. It seems like these people are being brainwashed, but no one knows how or why. So mm. they bring curiosity in and send him off into the galaxy to find out how this is being accomplished and who is behind it. He looks like a tough punk, man. I wouldn't mess with this cat, man. Looking at Curiosity on your page, man. He looks angry. When it comes down to it, he'll throw down with the best of them. Are you that type of guy? I mean, is this autobiographical in any sort of way? He's not necessarily the person I would like to be because he is, right. by his own admission, he's, he's not a very nice person and he is... Nah, he doesn't look like a nice guy. No, he's... he's quite capable of uh, doing terrible things if he feels like that's what he has to do. But to be serious, which I always, you know, endeavor to do, the graphics are incredible. You drew these? I wish I could draw Hold more. up, man. I mean, what are you taking credit for on this project? <laughs> I thought it up and I wrote it. At one point, I had some idea of drawing it myself, but that went out the window pretty quick once I, I finally had to admit the truth to myself that I, I can't draw very well. Something slightly more than stick figures is about as far as I go. So I knew I was going to have to have some real help. And I went out talking to people I knew in the art world. And eventually I got put together with this cartoonist in Argentina named uh, Federico Zumel. He hasn't really broken through like he should because he's a really great action artist. He's done a lot of comics in Argentina. And he's done a few things here in the U.S. He did the Victorian comics for Penny Farthing. And he did extracurricular activities, which is sort of a... Twin Peaks type book for Zuda Comics a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I kind of threw my scripts were very weird because it had, like I said, it has the world itself is a world full of big ideas where weird things are commonplace. So I kind of threw all that at him and it was some of it he had to really visualize himself. Some of it I could send him a reference and be like, this is what it's going to be like. And some of it I was like, well, this is what I'm thinking, but you're going to have to figure out what that looks like because I'm not entirely certain what that's supposed to look like. And he just went crazy. And he has to draw all kinds of weird stuff from the big futuristic cities to these giant gardens with living trees to one entire issue is just devoted to uh, the main character gets drugged and he hallucinates for an entire issue. Right. And he had to draw all these crazy hallucinations for 24 pages. And he, he knocked it out of the park. He's finished all 200 some odd pages, which I can't believe. I never thought I'd get to the point where I had 
200 pages worth of art for this thing finished, but he's, he did it all. It all looks great. You must be broke by now, man. And I art am. assets are um, very expensive, man. Actually, I have been very good about not telling my wife exactly how much I've spent on this so far. Oh, yeah. Don't do that, man. I mean, there are too many marriages in trouble right now because of stuff like that. Exactly. Which is <laughs> probably why I went to Kickstarter in the first place. Because it's taken me a few years to get to the point of getting all that done. And I don't want it to take like another 10 or 15 years to finish. You know, a lot of the art's done, but a lot of the, the finished stuff, getting it turned into color, is still left to go. And that's going to take another chunk of change. And uh, rather than it take me another 10 or 15 years and suddenly find myself 50 years old and finally finishing this thing, I thought uh, I would reach out to the people out there and uh, show them what I've got so far. And if they like it and they want to see the rest of it, help me out, help me get it finished. And there'll be and there's a lot of cool stuff for anybody who goes to Kickstarter and helps me fund it. You know, you get free copies of the actual printed book, plus, uh, you know, some other stuff for doing T-shirts and posters and the like. For anyone out there. Go to kickstarter.com and check out Curiosity. That's C-U-R-I-O-S-I-T-Y. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com where we will have links for Curiosity and Joshua on our site. Dude, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing such a cool project, man. Thanks for having me. Abhijan is a film about a young man from the Ivory Coast who dreams of becoming an opera singer. The main character, Landry, is 24 years old and he has never been formally trained in opera. Ave Maria. Welcome to the crib, Tanisha, and you have a very interesting film. And I haven't done a film in a while, so I was very happy to find yours. Thank you so much. Yes. What is that? The tenor from Abidjan? Yeah, the tenor from Abidjan. Smooth-looking young man, this tenor guy. He is a smooth-looking young man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if we must go by aesthetics. With a smooth voice, I mean, I have to say. He does have the voice. I mean, that's the whole premise of the film, that this guy is in Africa and somehow he's no formal training and somehow he's singing these, uh, what would you say, classic European operettas? Arias. arias. Yeah, he was singing arias. And you were drawn to this guy. He was ultra magnetic. You couldn't let it go. I couldn't let it go. I mean, he walked down the street, literally down the road, right past me and I um, once I found out that I had gotten the shot I just chased after him that doesn't happen to you every day that you're hanging out in a fishing village in any country and uh, somebody walks by you singing the opera so I was absolutely drawn to him I just want to know why do you believe this guy is better than I can't say better than me because I can't sing at all but better than someone who's <laughs> like you know you, you get in the shower and you're you're playing around and you might hear something you think man that sounds pretty good but what makes you think this guy could be the real deal as Alan Jackson would say I didn't know if he had talent. I just found his story very interesting. So my neighbor happens to be a soprano, mm -hmm. uh, an Italian soprano. She's world famous. She's, you know, played in houses all over the world. So I did ask her to take a look at his video and she was very impressed with him. 
you know, that sort of reassured me and helped me, you know, look at it from a, the perspective of like, it's not just a cool story, but he might actually be able to go somewhere with this. And it's not going to be, you know, sort of an ultimate heartbreak. So he does have raw talent as confirmed by somebody in the business, not just one. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a few other opera singers as well who were very impressed with his voice. I mean, we have to remember he has had absolutely no classical training. Uh, we probably should mention his name because... Right. <laughs> yeah. In my American accent, his name is Landry, um, but he calls himself Landry in his beautiful right. French accent. Okay, and I believe you say in the film that you... I guess we talk about stereotypes. We wouldn't expect a person in Africa, I guess the whole continent of Africa, to <laughs> possibly sing like this. Right. So that is what kind of makes him exotic. Uh, that's what kind of makes him different. He isn't different. The fact that there is you know, raw talent all over the African continent should be no surprise to anyone, but at least in the West, in America, we kind of run under the impression that the dark continent is really creating nothing good right. <laughs> besides strife and terror and warfare and poverty and hunger. So certainly, I think the reaction that a lot of people have had, while positive, is certainly you know coming from a place of like, oh, well, I don't even know how many countries there are in Africa. I don't know the capital cities of some of the major countries in Africa. How can it be that this young man has this incredible voice and he's not, you know, he has shoes and he doesn't look starving? Well, I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going <laughs> to go that far. I may, I may go all the way back to the motherland, but I'm not going to go that far. Okay, now how old is this guy? He's now 24. Is that a reasonable age for an opera singer? Or by 24, would you be kind of played out? Well, that's a question I also asked my neighbor, the opera singer, because I was worried, and he's actually very worried about it as well. He knows that his age could be a limitation. But, you know, what my neighbor said to me was, you know, essentially that she was trained in the wrong vocal category right. until she was 24 and actually had to go back to school and relearn everything in a different range. So she didn't debut until she was 30. And what that means for an opera singer, it's serious. It's not just like, oh, now I need to relearn the music. It's like you literally have to change the muscles, you know, in your chest and your throat to be able to make those sounds if you are miscategorized. Now I'm going to ask you a very weird question. And I mean, it's weird okay. because you can't be a psychic or anything like that, or at least I don't believe you are. So I, I want to know, did you go <laughs> you to- You never know. Right, 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 right. You could freak me out, but- uh... <laughs> But what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is, did you go to the entire continent of Africa to find this story? No, I didn't. <laughs> I know that question doesn't make sense, does it? It does make sense. I was there working on a different project, and I actually was shooting a commercial for a family friend. Right. That's why I was out in the village where I met him. Could you tell me about some of these clips that you've sent me? Like, which songs are they? Um, which arias are they actually? Well, one is Ave Maria. That's probably the most famous one. The other one, I still, I still don't know. And I asked him a few days ago, and and you know he's really busy, so he hasn't gotten back to me. But I'm pretty sure he's singing in German. That's the one, uh, not the yama 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 yama. Not that one. The other one. Oh, you need to keep singing. I want to hear more. <laughs> I want to hear more. This is cool now. All right. <laughs> it's called funiculi funicula, which is the funicular. You know, the little train that that yeah. goes up the hillside and it basically was like a workman's song 
for people like getting on the, you know, the tram to go up the hill to work the mountain. This is an odd cat. That's all I got yeah, to say. Yeah, he's an odd kid. <laughs> and for anyone out there on Kickstarter, please check out the tenor of Abidjan, a documentary by Tanisha. And dude, it's very fun to look at it actually, just to see dude's mouth just contorting in all these sort of ways, his lips sliding, you know, the bottom lip or yeah. something. I mean, it is hilarious. I I've never seen it up close before. So It's a weird art form, let's just say that. <laughs> Remember, we are the crowdfunding channel and we cover the globe. I'm Maurice Broadus. And I'm Jerry Gordon. You may know us as the editors of The Dark Faith and The Last Rites anthologies. We're teaming up with Alliteration Inc. to publish an anthology that blurs the line between crime and urban fantasy. It's going to be called Streets of Shadows. Wow, DJ Grandpa here and I hear I'm fashionably late. I think you're doing fine, man. I had to put on a theme song, man, because I, I had to come to the party amp, man, because I know you guys are talking about the streets, and I fight on the streets every day, man. So I wanted to be prepared, man, prepared. I appreciate that. Prepared. I don't have my drink ready yet. It's about to be happy <laughs> hour, man. Don't worry about the drinks yet. I'm Maurice. And I believe there's a Jerry hiding out there somewhere. Yeah, I'm Jerry Gordon. Okay, you have... Streets of Shadows, a new war. How do you say that? Streets of Shadows. Oh, yeah, they've been calling it a noir. A noir, a noir, a noir urban fantasy fiction anthology. Yeah, I keep it simple. It's, it's, it's crime and urban fantasy. All right, now who's going to tell me about this crime fiction urban fantasy mix-up here, man? This mashup. Or, I don't know if I can call it a mashup or mashup. But who's going to tell me about it first? I can do that. Okay. I wrote this urban fantasy series called uh, The Knights of Breton Court, right? Right. Basically, I'm retelling The Legend of King Arthur, except I'm set in the inner city of Indianapolis because uh, I work with a lot of gang members and, and homeless teenagers. I wanted to tell the story in the streets and, uh, and just keep it as real as possible. But see, crime novels are like my favorite thing to read, you know, when I'm just relaxing. So, you know, for me, crime and urban fantasy, they just go hand in hand together. What I wanted to do was put together an anthology basically those are the kind of stories I love to read and write, basically. Right. So King Arthur's Court, but in an urban setting. Yep. To motivate the youth. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I'll give you a movie that most people have seen. Have you ever seen uh, Christopher Nolan's Memento? I've heard of it, but I can go watch it on Netflix. You would love it. Okay. And that's a good example of modern noir. I think of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a kind of urban fantasy. Right. Imagine Buffy the Vampire Slayer to an NWA soundtrack. That's what it is for me. If you got the guts to explain it like that, I can definitely accept it. All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a little back history. I say things like I've never left the ghetto or I fight in the streets every day, you know, as in a funny sort of way or a mocking sort of way, like I take care of business all the time. But I grew up in the urban cities up north, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and it was never any fun being in the projects or anything like that. You had to fight every day and me being not normal, not a thug or something like that, or, you know, a thug in training, future felons of America. I just didn't fit in, man. I basically grew up in a very similar sort of environment. It's not even close to hood. You know, so I grew up, I read comic books, I'm watching Doctor Who. This is about as thug as I sound, ever. Right. So I never fit in anywhere I went. What about you, Jerry? You're awfully silent, dear. Maybe you're not fitting into this conversation. Is that a problem? 
No, no. I, I yeah, I, I, I grew up in some <laughs> bad neighborhoods, so I know what you guys are talking about. I kind of grew up really absorbed in the pulps and, and genre fiction as far as reading goes when I was a kid. Right. And I went off to college. I was lucky enough to do that and spent a lot of time studying the classics, literature, that sort of thing. And when I decided to be a writer, and also as an editor, Maurice and I have done this a couple of times together, I just naturally want to take areas that normally don't mix and kind of blend them together. Right. You know, see what we can do with them. And, you know, playing with crime, playing with uh, kind of the magical realism of urban fantasy, that idea that there's something a little different or strange or fantastic just around the corner. Right. I think there's some cool stuff with that. It's not sci-fi, right? It's something slightly different. Really, with urban fantasy, you're dealing with the idea of a modern urban environment with really just the fantastic in there. So you're taking something that's, you know, if it's noir, it's it's a little different. But if you're just dealing with crime, then you're, you're dealing with a, a fairly real-world setting, and you're bringing some interesting elements into it. I mean, I do understand the words urban and fantasy and fiction and crime noir, but I don't really exactly understand how that all mashes together. Like, what could actually come out of that? You could do anything. I mean, the possibilities are endless. You could have a zombie detective, you know, trying to solve crime. You know, what if we had, like, say, the Greek pantheon of gods? You know, what if they had set up a gang? And what if they were trying to run gangs in modern-day times? <laughs> now that's fun. I hope that makes it into the pages. Actually, you know what? I, I do, too, now, all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, I hope you stole that idea or something. We're going to have an open call with this anthology. We've got a set of headliners attached to it. We've got kind of another group of writers that have committed to doing it. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have it open for anybody out there who wants to give the anthology a shot. So oh. somebody's out there listening to that idea. It's a good one to seal. We always have to name drop. You know, we're Americans and stuff. So who mm-hmm. are the heavy hitters on this project? We've got Kevin J. Anderson. Right. Uh, we've got Tim Levin, Seanan McGuire, Brandon Massey's going to write a story for us. Most recently, we've added uh, Christine Catherine Rush. So those are some of the headliners that we have attached right now. Do you ever run out of ideas? Because I don't know anything about writer's block or anything like that. I I never run out of ideas. So do either of you ever go through that? You know, one of the big questions that people who don't write uh, that we get a lot is, is where do the ideas come from and do you ever run out of them? I need 10 lifetimes for the number of ideas I have. So... The issue is is the time and the effort to execute them. Maurice here. You know, when it comes to writer's block, you know, me and my wife once sat down when I was going through what I thought was writer's block, and I was like, oh, honey, I just don't know uh, what to do next, and I, I'm so torn, and I have this blank page in front of me, and I don't know what to do next, and he looks at me dead in the eyes and goes, uh, look here, we got bills to pay, so we have time for you to you know, do a writer's angst thing. You better find some words and put them on the paper. You know, that's all the writer's block problem for me, because we got bills to pay. And for anyone out there, you want to check out the latest anthology on Kickstarter, Streets of Shadows, a noir urban fantasy fiction anthology. And these guys have come together and they put their differences aside and they've come up with an incredible lineup. Jerry, Maurice, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show and and thanks for leaving Steve out, man. (laughs) No problem, man. Anytime, anytime. (laughs) Our pleasure. 
Welcome to Police Precinct, the fast-paced crime-solving Common game. Man Games. This is Dude. Eric Summerer. Hey. I love what you're doing. Welcome to the crib, man. Thank you. It's great to be here. Police Precinct, second edition. You've been on Kickstarter for a little while now, so you kind of know your way around. And I feel like there's some obvious questions here. You still being a fledgling company, but building momentum, building a what they call a catalog, a brand. I agree. We're very happy with how that Kickstarter turned out and looking forward to delivering now on our promises. I thought you've already been delivering. You're, oh, you're not, yeah. oh what, what are you talking about? I, I'm told, I've read that you're breaking some sort of Kickstarter history here. Am I wrong? <laughs> you are right. Let's back up for a second. So I am looking forward <laughs> to delivering all the promises from that Kickstarter. There are some promises from that Kickstarter that have already been delivered, and some of them in record speed. We delivered our first reward from this Kickstarter in 19 minutes. What are you, a psychic or something? How could you do 19 (laughs) minutes? Well, there's a variety of things that went into play there. First, we had a Kickstarter that went on in the fall that was for an expansion called The Heat. Uh, Along with, we included some other expansionary type items along with that Kickstarter. And that Kickstarter was very brief, about 13 days, I think. And we tried to, and actually were successful in starting our second Kickstarter while that was still going on so that the backers would have a choice between which Kickstarter really made the most sense for them. Anyway, that first Kickstarter ended and we were able to ship those in 10 days, which was, to our knowledge, the fastest delivery of rewards ever in Kickstarter history. And then we sort of wanted to have fun with that. We wanted to sort of break our own record, so to speak. So we we had to locate a backer who was strong with their backing, wasn't going to drop out at the last second, and lived somewhere that we could locate them and make a delivery very quickly after the Kickstarter ended. So we found that person. Her name was Christine Stack of Denver. And before the Kickstarter even ended, we had everything lined up. We had her kit ready to deliver to her. We even brought her donuts, which would be appropriate for a crime-fighting game, as well as we brought her a Domino's pizza because we felt like, (laughs) hey, there's another company that was founded on making deliveries in sort of record speed. I mean, do you bet the farm when you deliver everything so fast? I mean, there's so many questions. How could you do this in UPS and FedEx couldn't do it for Christmas? Uh, There's so many stories. Well, there's definitely a few things that went into play. One is that this expansion, the heat, is made right here in the United States. Right. And uh, by doing that, we can order that on a Monday and have it in-house on Friday. When you're getting games made abroad, which we do from time to time, obviously, but with this particular expansion, we're able to do that in the United States, along with the revised rule book and things like that. So that enabled us to go partway through the Kickstarter, see what we thought the demand was going to be, make a good guess, the best guess we could, as to how many we would ultimately need, and place an order. So as soon as the Kickstarter ended, we made that delivery to Chris, and then I rushed back to the office and sent surveys, and then, believe it or not, I actually went and played an ice hockey game, and then... When I came back from that, 
I checked to see how many folks had done their surveys and it was a shocking amount. So we were able to print out all the labels for those folks and get those delivered first thing the next morning. See, the only part about your story that's not shocking is the ice hockey game. (laughs) That's believable. Right. That's believable. All the rest is I'm taking you on your crowdfunding word of honor because I'm going to be a stickler on that with gamers this year, you know, because so many of them, they have, you know, they're all talking about new mechanics, new mechanics, new mechanics. Well, I I know your number one question, your number one criteria for any game is, is it fun? That's right. And and I'd like to say that Police Precinct is a lot of fun and it it's the only game out there where you can really get into character as a crime fighter. So I certainly think the answer to that is yes. Maybe we should actually explain the game a little bit because you said it's fun and that is a main criteria, but I'm sure people want to kind of hear us talk about like what the game actually is. I know it's police precinct and, you know, that may seem obvious, but I still think you should explain the game just a little bit. So the game begins with placing a board down that shows a map of a little section of a city and each person gets to take on a character that is unique from the, all the other characters. And they're sort of strong in certain areas, maybe weaker in other areas. And it's a co-op game. So everyone is working together to sort of, in a sense, beat the board. Now, by the way, it's important to mention that there is a variant how you can play that involves a dirty cop. I don't know if variant is quite the right way to put it, but there's an entire deck of cards and a set of rules that is involved. It's a very, very important part of the game. So pure co-op games are not for everyone, and uh, games with the traitor element are not for everyone. Some people like both. Some people like one or the other, but Police Precinct enables you to do either one, and it plays one to six. So there's a lot of variety in terms of uh, if you like the traitor element, or pure co-op, and a lot of variety in terms of uh, you know how big your gaming group is. And there's even sort of a, a little set of rules that you can even play with up to eight players as well. I want to say it's like you're building this franchise here, Common Man Games. And, and this game is like, it's like almost important. And I don't mean in a negative sort of way to put you down. I mean like you actually have a police precinct or police precincts playing this game as like an instructional tool for future police officers of America? Yes. There's a school called Fairfield Career Center in Carroll, Ohio, right. that uses the game to teach new cadets about sort of uh, how to allocate resources and things. And it kind of sent a message to me that the game is important on maybe more more levels than I was originally perceiving. You know, I saw it as we've always taken an approach to the game where we want it to be both having fun with the game, but also to a level taking it seriously because, you know, we have a, a lot of respect for law enforcement and the folks that work in that field. And they've been great about the game. Right. We've got a number of law enforcement consultants that help us to keep the game as real as we can. And they all seem to appreciate our kind of sense of humor with the use of the donuts and different things like that. Oh, so. jelly donut cops, jelly donut <laughs> cops. You know, it's hard It's hard to be on the airwaves and be disrespectful of police officers or military officers, but I still love that stereotype of jelly donut cops, man. I'm you know, to be that. honest, the people who have gotten the most enjoyment out of the whole donut thing 
are the folks that work in law enforcement, the cops that play this game. They absolutely love it. We're proud to bring to them something that they feel very attached to and, and can appreciate both in a serious right. way and in and a humorous way. If there's anyone out there who loves police games, who's, who loves crime, murder mystery, stuff like that, dirty cops, possibly go to kickstarter.com and check out Police Precinct, the second edition. It funded not so long ago, so we are here to congratulate Carl and Common Man Games. And if you can't find it on Kickstarter, please go to djgrandpa.com where we will post links for Carl and his burgeoning uh, police franchise. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Zach Samal, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus. 